Welcome to Election R&D from the University of Southern California's Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. I'm Bob Shrum, the Warsaw Professor of the Practice of Politics and the Director of the Center for the Political Future here at USC Dornsife, along with my long-term adversary in the political battlefield and the Center's co-director, Mike Murphy. Uh, Let me welcome you to a conference aptly titled The Disunited States of America, focusing on how tribalism has pushed us into our own corners, where we too often dispense with inconvenient facts and disdain those with whom we disagree. I want to thank our panelists, and in particular, John Patsakis and Kevin Biggs Beggs for their generous gifts that made today possible. Ken Brode and Jonathan Goldman have also made major contributions. And my colleague in the Department of Political Science and International Relations, Allison Dundell's Renttown, who has been integral in this whole effort from the very start. Our mission at the center is to model and advance a dialogue where we respect each other and respect the truth, where we do our part to bring the academy into the public square, and where we prepare a new generation of students to be involved in the great debates and the great decisions of our time and theirs. Our goal today is to have a constructive dialogue about political tribalism. We ask all of you, our speakers and those who will be asking questions, to be not only candid but civil toward one another. Now let me introduce Kami Akhavan, our executive director and the former CEO of Procon.org, the nation's leading resource on controversial issues. He will moderate our first panel on the roots and impact of political tribalism. Kami. Thank you very much, Bob. Uh, For those of you who can't see me, I'll just stand up at the very beginning here. Uh, This is the first panel. Uh, Welcome. I wanted to tell you a little bit about what we have in store, at least for this first panel. Uh, we're gonna, I will initially provide some context about uh, tribalism, political polarization, and give you some scary statistics. Uh, we're going to discuss, I will introduce our panel, then we will discuss what is tribalism, how bad is it, how did this happen, and then how can we fix it. After that, we want to hear your questions. Uh, there's not going to be a lot of time for questions, but I just want you to know there will be breaks in between our panels, and there is a lunch. So if there's something you really want to know, there's time to ask. So don't feel bad if you don't get called. So we do have a lot of, we're all here to get answers, uh, but first I have some questions, and I just wanted to understand something. So uh, by a show of hands, I wanted to understand how many people in this room have unfriended someone on social media or ended a relationship with someone because of political differences by show hands. Thank you. Okay, interesting. Uh, And then how many of you in the room think that polarization today is as bad as it has been in your lifetimes? Big number. Oh, interesting. Well, here's the scary statistic. So uh, in 1994, uh, 16% of Democrats had a very unfavorable rating of Republican Party. That 16% went up to 38% in 2014. In 1994, 17% of Republicans had a very unfavorable rating about the Democratic Party. That 17% turned to 43% in 2014. 
More scary, in 2014, 27% of Democrats and 36% of Republicans see the other party as a, quote, threat to the nation's well-being. It's about a quarter of Democrats, about a third of Republicans see the other party as a threat. In January 2019, just earlier this year, a new study was presented where survey participants were asked, do you think we'd be better off as a country if large numbers of the opposing party in the public today just died? And 15% of Republicans and 20% of Democrats answered yes to that question. So to help us understand those kinds of statistics, we have assembled a dream team panel up here. So let me start with a description of the dream team here. Uh, first up, we have uh, Mr. Ron Christie. Now, Ron got his bachelor's degree from Haverford College. He has a JD from George Washington University. Uh, Ron served in various consulting legal political roles throughout his career. He was acting director of USA Freedom Corps. He was special assistant to President George W. Bush. He began his service in the White House in 2001 as deputy assistant to Vice President Cheney. Prior to joining the vice president's staff, he served as counsel to Virginia Senator George Allen and senior advisor to Ohio Congressman John Kasich. He's written three books about race, history, and leadership. He's taught at Harvard, Georgetown. He's currently a 2019 fellow at the USC Dornsife Center for the Book of Future. I have a question for him. So, Ron, uh, I've been on mainstream media from NBC and NPR to ABC, CNN. I've been translated into Turkish, French, Spanish, and 10 different countries. You beat me by miles. Your curve currently covering the election for the BBC. You've appeared on the shows of Wolf Blitzer, Greta Van Susteren, Bill Maher, Lou Dobbs, Chris Matthews, Bill O'Reilly, Sean Hannity, Tavis Smiley. My question is, for all those media appearances, how does that compare to being on Veep and House of Cards? <laughs> uh, good, good morning, everybody. So how does that compare? I, I think being on those shows was much easier than being on Veep and House of Cards. Being an extra for a television program, those two in particular, those are 18-hour days. And I learned one very important thing. There is union food and there's non-union food. <laughs> if you're not in the union, you get water and peanuts. If you're in the union, you get the food truck. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Ron Christie. Uh, to Ron's right, uh, we have uh, Dr. Allison Rentelm. Uh, so Allison has got more degrees than a thermometer. She has a bachelor's from Harvard. She has a JD from USC. She has a PhD from Berkeley. She's a professor of political science, anthropology, public policy, and law. Professor Rentelm studies international law, human rights, comparative legal systems, constitutional law, and legal and political theory. She's an expert on cultural rights, including the use of the cultural defense in the legal system. She's published a book titled The Cultural Defense as an ha and has an upcoming paper on tribalism. Question for you, Allison. Now, you have three degrees and joint appointments in three departments. That's impressive. Your father, Alan Dundas, was a famous professor at Berkeley. He was known as the jokes professor. Given your many titles and many appointments, what word or phrase would best describe you as a professor? Allison Dundas Rentelm, the blank professor. <laughs> Well, good morning, everyone, and thank you for coming. I think I'd have to ask my students that. Um, I would hope that I'm an open-minded and an engaging professor, but I guess I'm the human rights professor if I'm going by field. I thought you were going to ask me what I'd, I'd learned from my father. He always teased that I didn't have a sense of humor. How many feminists does it take to change a light bulb? 
That's not funny. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Allison Rensel. Uh, so to Allison's right, we have uh, the honor of the presence of Dr. Stephen Hopfall. Now, Stephen has a bachelor's degree in psychology from the University of Illinois, Urbana. He has a master's in psychology from the University of South Florida in Tampa. Got his PhD there, too, in philosophy. Uh, Dr. Hopfall is a Judd and Marjorie Weinberg presidential professor and chair of the Department of Behavioral Sciences at Rush University Medical Center. He's a former senior fellow of the Center for National Security Studies at the University of Haifa. He's written over 300 journal articles, book chapters, technicals, report. He's written 12 books, including Traumatic Stress, The Ecology of Stress, and Stress, Culture, and Community. His latest book, Tribalism, The Evolutionary Origins of Fear of Politics, is a must-read. We do have a few copies here today. Thanks, Rob, for holding that up. That's right. Uh, Dr. Hopfall, question for you, sir. Uh, before your many academic achievements and a career in studying stress and tribalism, you're also an officer in the Israeli Defense Forces. IDF soldiers are world famous for their lightning speed and going from sleep to battle ready, their scramble time. My question for you is, how long did it take you to get ready to come here today, and were you stressed about it? <laughs> well, I can... I'll, I'll sort of non-answer that question. The, a part of your training that was so hard is you have to you sleep with your weapon, and they spend your whole time, you shower with it, and they spend all your training trying to steal it from you, to which you go to military prison if they do. And I still have nightmares about uh, if I feel something under my pillow that someone's trying to steal uh, uh, my automatic weapon out, out of my hands. So... Uh, I didn't have that nightmare last night, I, uh, so I, I, but I still got up pretty quickly. <laughs> right. Ladies and gentlemen, Stephen Hopfall. Now, to Stephen's right, uh, we are joined by a USC professor, Dr. Jonas Kaplan. Now, Jonas, you got your bachelor's degree from University of Michigan. You got your PhD from the school across the city, UCLA. Uh, and uh, since then, you have been doing uh, some super interesting work in brain scanning. You have scanned more brains than probably everyone in this room put together knows. Uh, you've scanned the brains of one of the world's most famous stringed instrument players, <laughs> Dr. Uh, Hossein Alizadeh. Uh, and uh, you are currently running the Dornsife Imaging Center. Uh, you have various other appointments here on, on, on the faculty, uh, all of them related to science. And your specialty area in, in uh, the scientific areas is really understanding the mapping the brain to understand the centers for empathy, for thinking, for consciousness, uh, and things that uh, a lot of us don't don't think about, but they have some type of anatomical basis for it. Uh, you're expert in that field, and and uh, I'm so intrigued by your work, uh, Dr. Kaplan. I wanted to uh, ask my question for you, uh, being that uh, since you have studied the masters of Near Eastern stringed instruments, you yourself have studied with probably the greatest sitar player of the last several decades, uh, Ustad Khan, uh, and I wanted to ask, if things don't work out for you in the brain imaging world, uh, how's it looking for you as a sitar player? <laughs> uh, yeah, when, when I was in grad school at UCLA, Ustad Khan was there as a visiting professor, and so I went down a 10-year rabbit hole of studying in North Indian classical music, and that was long enough for me to know uh, just how bad at it I actually am. So, <laughs> that's... Ladies and gentlemen, Jonas Kaplan. 
All right, so next time we really want to get into the meat of the discussion here today, which is how bad is it? Uh, I shared some scary stats earlier, but uh, to understand how bad is it, let's understand what it even is. Uh, This is the notion of tribalism. This is the notion of is it the same thing as polarization? I want to start, if I can, with you, uh, Allison, which is uh, about tribalism. What, in your opinion, is tribalism in a political context? Uh, Is it basically polarization on steroids? Is it something deeper? What do you think it is? So I think tribalism is this notion that people identify with groups and have this strong sense of loyalty, even if it's against their own interest, and that there is that that influences such as xenophobia and um, nativism uh, seem to be uh, sort of key uh, aspects of uh, tribalism. I think the term itself is somewhat controversial because in sometimes in the social sciences people think that the term is connected to colonialism um, that uh, it may be associated with historic injustices so the use of the term itself is somewhat politically controversial um, and you know certain words historically fall out of favor like you know anthropologists used to use the word um, savage society in the 19th century and then they used the word primitive, primitive cultures, quote-unquote. And those are very obviously derogatory terms. So to say something is tribal can have this negative aspect. So to say that American politics is tribal, some people worry that it will have a negative connotation. But there are good aspects of tribalism as well in the sense that it gives people a sense, of, a strong sense of identity and solidarity and satisfaction to be part of a group. And so I think people assume that tribalism means you can only be part of one tribe. And we worry about whether people identify as Americans and what are our common values. And I think these are some of the things we're going to be exploring today. But um, I think that it's we should have a more nuanced understanding of tribalism because people belong to more than one tribe. People have multiple identities. So... I think part of the reason we wanted to have this conference is that people use the term tribalism in so many different ways, and we come from different fields and, and professions, so I think you're going to hear us using the term tribalism in quite different ways. But it's not just political polarization. It goes beyond that because it goes to these emotional appeals that are made, and President Trump is you know, an example of someone who very effectively and unfortunately makes appeals to tribalism. I appreciate that. Now, uh, Dr. Hopfall, I wanted to ask you the same question for the the terminology, because you've written a lot about tribalism, uh, and I wonder if you think it is uh, polarization on steroids, or is it something deeper? Is it uh, uh, what some may think of as a a pathology? This is is different. This is identity, solidarity, common values. It's the other is the enemy. Do you see it more that way, or or what's your view on on what it is? Well, I actually don't think the United States is as bad as it at least could be. Uh, it, it's it's become mainstream, which is the odd thing for us in the United States. Well, we have two political parties that many outsiders say there's almost no difference between Democrats and Republicans. If you compare to Euro- many European politics, well, there'll be 12 or 14 parties or in Israel, uh, uh, and so you get gr- a great deal of identity but it's drifted into the mainstream, and for the first time, we have a president uh, pitching hatred of the other, opening up his uh, his candidacy with the talking about immigrants from from Mexico as as racists and criminals. Uh, we haven't had that kind of, of language 
uh, uh, from, from the top. But for example, historically, after uh, World War I, when American soldiers were coming home, the lynchings and race riots in Chicago, where, where uh, white young men returning went into the black neighborhoods and started lynch people and young black men who had been soldiers said, we're not going to stand for this. And that was a big surprise for the whites because they had kind of already stood for it before. Uh, uh, and, and many people uh, 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 killed. The, the, the famous original male daily was a street urchin gang leader at that time and won his, his battle stripes in that. So we have, thank God, we haven't gotten to the period where there's pitched battle in the streets and, and people being murdered. But it's scary for us to see it in the mainstream and to see the language of hatred in the mainstream of uh, the other side's a Nazi, the other side is uh, uh, undermining the very fabric of the United States and can destroy us. We haven't had that here. Uh, it's a, an important distinction, and I wanted to ask Dr. Koppel, from your point of view, the distinction that uh, Dr. Hopfall is making uh, regarding uh, how different it is. Uh, do you see that from a, a scientific point of view? Is If someone disagrees on an issue, say it's abortion or death penalty, does their brain perform differently than if they consider the other person the enemy, the, the threat, the something that must be stopped? Is it, is it physiologically different? Yeah, I think the way that uh, I view this from the perspective of neurobiology is that, you know, if you think about what the brain is, what, why we have a brain, what the brain is there for, the brain is, is really a sophisticated mechanism for keeping us alive and protecting us. And for the vast majority of the, the brain's life throughout evolution, it's been purposed with protecting our physical cells, our physical bodies, and maintaining our um, our body in, in a way that, that allows us to live. And as our bodies grew minds, uh, the mind became something worth protecting for the brain. And what we see when we look at the brain is that many of these old systems in the brain that are originally purposed for um, things like um, allowing us to stay away from spoiled food or to uh, avoid threatening uh, things that might hurt us are deeply involved in these modern processes when we think about things like politics and our social group because the brain is interested in protecting our beliefs and our ideas in the same way that it's interested in protecting our bodies. So that's what we see when we look at the brain. I, I do appreciate that distinction, and it's fascinating. Now, on the flip side of it, though, the term tribalism <clears throat> is used very, very frequently. As we all know, we hear it all the time in, in mainstream media because it has a, a distinct political element to it. And to speak to the political element of it, Ron, I wanted to ask, ask your opinion about what do you think the term tribalism means in today's political context? Is it hyperpolarization, or do you think it really is something different? Well, I do think it is hyper-politicalization, uh, and I, I come at this from the perspective of being a practitioner. Um, I remember in 1991, when I first arrived on Capitol Hill, I was excited, I was young, I was a Republican staffer, and I distinctly remember getting a phone call from Congresswoman Maxine Waters, who asked me to come to her office. And I was excited, I'm a native Californian, I raced downstairs, and she said, what's wrong with you? You're a Republican, you're a sellout, you're an Uncle Tom, and you're a disgrace to your race. And I've had more death threats, I've had more uh, people come up and say horrific things to me because I'm black and conservative, 
And if you look at the voting trends that nearly 90% of African Americans in this country vote for Democrats. And so therefore, if you are conservative and you're black, then there's something wrong with you. And so from my perspective, the tribalization is really a lack of openness to thoughts for those who don't agree with you. And that is what I believe is infecting our politics right now. On Capitol Hill right now, you're either wearing the red jersey, the blue jersey, and it's not the red, white, and blue jersey. And to get out of this, and we'll talk about this in the solution phase of how do we come together and unite as Americans as opposed to wearing this jersey or that jersey. But from my perspective, I've never seen it as racially divisive in this country in my all of 50 years. And it really is something that needs to change. Uh what a powerful example, and, and uh, that, I think, is a good segue because I wanted to ask about other examples to illustrate how bad is it. We, when we asked, is it as bad as it's been in your lifetime, almost every hand in the room went up. Uh, I was wondering if, if uh, you, Jonas, or, or Stephen, or Allison could share, from your point of view, an example of how bad you think it is. And maybe we'll start with you, Jonas. Uh, it seems pretty bad. Um, yeah, we we, uh, we did a, a study recently on um, why it's so difficult for people to change their minds about about politics. We looked into what's happening in the brain when we challenge people on their uh, political beliefs. And after we published this study, I started to get contacted by people um, who had been struggling with changing their minds and facing uh, dealing with some of the consequences of what it's like to change their minds. I talked to one person who had been a very strong um, Democrat, and over the course of his life, he sort of slowly, uh, sorry, it was the other way around. He started as a conservative and changed his his um, political beliefs to being a liberal, which is quite rare. Um, but what he described to me was that the cost of doing this was so high that, you know, he almost couldn't have gone through it, that he ended up losing all of his friends, his social groups. I mean, a lot of these beliefs are so important to us because they bind us to other people. And so to change them means changing everything about your life. So he had to change his social group, his friends, his life partner, his job. And that was just a, an enormous price to pay for just having a change of political mind. And that's one of the forces that tends to keep us so polarized in, in our in our. What uh, a great example. Thank you. Uh, Stephen, it looks like you were going to share an example as well. Well, I, I think what we have to remember, see, Americans are, uh, as a whole, very centrist. So how do you rev up the engine? You rev up the engine with extremist language of uh, uh, they are Nazis, they're going to destroy us, they are undermining the very fabric of society. Uh, uh, even the way we use the term patriot, because uh, uh, the opposite of you must be a communist or somehow uh, uh, ready to uh, to destroy the, the United States. And if you don't pump in that language, you don't light up those parts of the brain that then signal this very extremist um, uh, uh, reaction to it. Because our politicians have a problem. Americans are, by and large, centrists. Uh, about 80% are, are, are centrists. So uh, they would really vote for a party in, in, in the middle if if such thing was ever created and the political system would, would could could tolerate it. So we have to have this supercharged language of, of hatred and distrust in order to fuel what we're what we're going through now. And that's very scary to us because we're centrists uh, uh, for the most part. Uh, great example. How about you, Allison? Well, it seems that this is very theoretical and focusing on the rhetoric that's used, and that's certainly important, but how can we not talk about the wall and the, the camps where children are separated 
and and uh, and not allowing judges to be appointed who you know not to be considered. To me, it seems that how it's affecting our political institutions. That those are the things that come to mind: the, the public policies that are so divisive, and and the the, the lack of a protection of people's civil rights. Um, it's a great point, and it's actually a great segue because I wanted to ask Iran a question, really, about the on the political practitioner side. So. Um, I looked at a, a map of all the counties and how they voted and the margins of victory that were, were decided in those uh, counties, in those elections. So in 1992, uh, we had 1,096 counties uh, out of about 3,113 counties. So about a third of all the counties in the United States were decided by single-digit margins. Uh, that compares to 303 in 2016. So it's a pretty dramatic drop. Uh, in 1992, uh, elections in 93 counties were landslides. Uh, 93, a landslide meaning that the victor was determined by 50 percentage points or greater. Uh, versus that 93 in 1992, that compares to 1,196 counties, uh, flash forward to 2016, way more landslide victories. Uh, so I wanted to understand, to your point, Allison, and to question to you, Ron, is how do you explain that trend? Is that tribalism in action? Do we Are we seeing these trends where our, our uh, elections are increasingly uncompetitive uh, in the general elections, that is, uh, are, are we seeing that trend because of tribalism? Is this an example of, of the effects of gerrymandering or an example of the effects of money in politics or an example of a greater emphasis in the primary system or more extreme candidates? Or How, how do you explain that, that trend? Well, there, there are two interesting things, Comedy, to really take a look at here. It is really impossible, nearly impossible, once you're elected to the House of Representatives to get defeated, right? I mean, you have a 90%, better than 90% chance of getting reelected. Why is that? It's gerrymandering, right? The lines are drawn, and this is why it's so important for all the citizens to be counted, for all of the individuals to be counted in the census, because that's how we have apportionment for our congressional districts. But the other side of this, where it goes to tribalism, I believe, is this. Uh, one of my friends, Dan Donovan, who used to represent New York's 11th district in Staten Island, who was defeated last year, said, you come from all these safe congressional districts, and if I was seen talking to a Democrat by somebody in party leadership, then they might withhold money from me. They might decide to strip a committee assignment from me or take other, dis other uh, discriminatory action against me because I spoke to a Democrat. And that goes to the tribalism that is on both sides of the political spectrum that I see in Washington, D.C., whenever it is that I'm there. I mean, I, I'm living in three cities now, so I'm not quite sure where I am right now. Um, but it goes to the notion that you can't have an honest conversation with someone because they are a Democrat or they are a Republican. So the gerrymandering keeps them in that safe seat, but it also has the unintended effect, I believe, of if you step out from where you should be, then you're going to get someone to challenge you from the left or the right who's more in line of what is perceived to be the politically correct thoughts of the day. Uh, that certainly explains the, the where we are now uh, very well. And I remember talking to Congressman Jolly and Murphy, who were going to run as a Democrat and Republican for the top two spots in the state of Florida. And polling suggested they were going to be dead last, even though a lot of us in the room think, wow, what great champions for, uh, for cross-partisanship. Uh, but no, uh, the party structures were... Uh, developed in such a way to make it, uh, to disincentivize people to work with uh, the opposing uh, parties. Uh, so I wanted to ask then about the, you talked about gerrymandering. I wanted to ask about uh, money in politics. So right now we're seeing 
Citizens United, there's a greater influx of money in our political systems. Our politicians are spending, you know, roughly half of their time uh, uh, fundraising in some capacity, phone or in person. Uh, and people are increasingly sending their money out of district so they can influence elections outside of their areas. Uh, and so that means that people with, with deep pockets and perhaps more extreme views uh, can influence elections all around the country. And I wondered if anyone on the panel wanted to talk about that element as a contribution to the origins of tribalism, money and politics. Is it a factor or is it not? Well, I'm going to turn that a little bit to, to how uh, the, the, the downstream influence of this. Uh, uh, there's a uh, scientific committee that is the main scientific committee to protect the United States. In other words, it has the experts that if we were attacked in this way or that, or there was a, a virus that was uh, infected, how would we respond to it? Uh, I sat on that uh, committee for years Currently, there are almost no experts on that committee because they become political appointees uh, pushed by lobbyists with money, uh, meaning the United States is vulnerable to attack because there are no experts to ask if there was an atomic bomb and it exploded, God forbid, in New York, uh, how would we respond to it? Because the military doesn't know how to respond to it. It's a scientific uh, question. If AIDS, uh, if uh, uh, SARS epidemic occurred, how to stop the spread is a scientific question. We, we have uh, removed those individuals because the people with money press the politicians who then put people on those committees who are, are not the, the world-class experts. And that speaks to the, this downstream uh, uh, effect uh, that occurs and makes us also to the point of generals, although uh, the president's had a hard time finding generals that are uh, that spineless, but it, it, uh, they're looking for those who will, will be yes men. We want our generals not to be to be protecting uh, us as uh, as you said, red, white, and blue is as as who they protect. So these are the downstream effects, and it comes from political influence and money. Well, please, yes. So I, I started on Capitol Hill in 1991. Uh, I left uh, working for either the White House or, or Capitol Hill in 2004. And I can tell you certainly when I worked for then Congressman John Kasich, he was out dialing for dollars. Like, you, you cannot solicit federal funds in a federal office building. So he was out in the street dialing for dollars maybe an hour, two hours a day. You fast forward to the 2000s, and many members of Congress are now spending half of their time every single day calling and soliciting funds. And it goes to a text I want to read you that I got when I was teaching last night of how politicized money has become in this process. So my wife was flying back. Um, she's coming this weekend. I'm excited. And uh, I kept the phone on because, of course, she doesn't like turbulence. And I said, you know, honey, if you're turbulent, uh, I will answer in class. And I got this, and I thought it was my wife, and it says, this is Newt Gingrich. Do not let the American people be fooled by the left's impeachment fraud. We are seeking a five-time matching loyalty patriots grant who stand with Trump. It's even texting now of people looking for money, of everything. Money pervades everything in the political process right now, and I think that leads to a high degree of cynicism of why Americans are so tired of politics, Kami, because it's money, 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 and what about policy, public, uh, public policy, and doing the right thing? I'd like to just comment on some of the remarks of my colleagues. I think that uh, the idea that uh, tribalism leads to the appointment of people who won't be critical is really a key idea and that uh, it's unpatriotic to question things. And I think that's one of the really most insidious aspects of 
tribalism. I also think that many organizations, public citizen, common cause, have been trying to overturn Citizens United with a constitutional amendment because it's basically made our system corrupt. And what it, you, one can see why really good people wouldn't want to run for office. And sort of, we're not quite to solutions, but we need to attract better people to run for office. And so one of the sort of strange consequences of uh, President Trump's um, statements and and use of tribal uh, hate language has been to attract more women to run. So part of the solution, which I think is what page 194 of your book, is that more women need to be involved. We need a matriarchy um, that... Uh, that that maybe one of the peculiar consequences of tribalism was to get more women involved in politics, and that might might lead to a solution. Um, I was thinking of one of the examples of really upsetting tribalism was you know telling people to go back where they came from. The language of the squad. I think that was an example that spoke to your earlier question. Uh- I do appreciate that point very much. You know, uh, even though we're here for an hour to talk about the origins of tribalism, we could teach a whole course on this, right? This could go on for weeks and weeks, but um, to, to make sure that we get other uh, angles on the origins here, I wanted to, uh, if I can shift to, to you, Jonas, and ask uh, a little bit about the science of this. So I want to understand uh, if if a person goes to, to Google because uh, there was a shooting and they want to look up issues related to, say, gun rights or gun control, whatever term they're, they're typing in, uh, or if they go into social media in order to gain information and learn from their peers, um, what happens in the brain whenever we are exposed to these technologies and we end up in a, some form of an echo chamber based on algorithms or based on the friends we choose to keep or based on the many different factors that technology has embedded in it. Uh, what happens in our brains, and is that part of the, the increase of the rise of tribalism? Yeah, you know, in thinking about the, the text message, it's hard to underestimate the effect of these kind of disembodied interactions we have with, with each other nowadays. Um, you know, a lot is said about the, the internet and the way that it organizes us into social groups and helps to polarize us. But the other thing we need to think about in, in the internet is that we have these conversations where there's information transfer on a very abstract level, but that we don't deal with each other face to face. And, you know, the brain has a lot of built-in systems that predispose us towards being in tribes. It, you know, feels good to uh, connect with other people and to be part of a group. But it also has some natural balances to those processes. The brain is sort of naturally empathetic. And we have these kind of automatic empathies with other people when we see them in person. The brain kind of simulates what the other person's body is doing. And we feel a little bit of what someone else is feeling. You know, it's why we all end up sort of sitting in the same posture up, up on the stage unconsciously. And when we deal with each other uh, over the internet and you don't have those natural resonances, you're missing that whole sort of uh, break point on, on, um, that, that would naturally make us feel more empathetic and connected to other people. And so um, I, I think we have to think a lot about what the effects of these uh, technologies are that, that physically remove us but still allow us to interact. I appreciate that point very much. And, uh, and just to bring up a yet another point, uh, I remember I worked with over 12,000 schools in all 50 states and 93 countries trying to teach critical thinking, uh, and it's a skill that uh, had often been displaced by this hyper-focus on STEM education, where a lot of uh, federal education dollars were focused on STEM. Now we see civics education that most of us probably grew up with. Uh, it's really not taught in schools anymore, or barely is. It's extracurricular. It's optional. Social studies programs are really uh, under uh, dramatically underfunded. Uh, and so, Mike, I wanted to ask of the, uh, the educator here on, on the panel, specifically Allison, about... 
uh, the role of education as a contributor to tribalism? Is it that as our society now uh, have we have to deal with things like Twitter and social media? We have uh, not a twenty a 24-hour news cycle. We don't have three major networks. We have hundreds of different networks to choose from. We require a lot more of people in our society to be thoughtful consumers. And I wonder if you feel that education, uh, we, we just don't have the right kind of education, and that's part of the problem for the acceleration of tribalism. I think that's a very important question, and I probably can't do it justice in such a brief time, but certainly teaching uh, students to think critically, to learn how to corroborate facts so they can distinguish. Th- those sorts of things are crucial. Civic education, civic engagement. We have colleagues here uh, who specialize in that. Um, but how do you ensure that students actually acquire those kinds of skills? Um, maybe high schools should have an exit exam that, that uh, tests for civics or that the SAT, if we're going to keep it at all, should have civics for, for, for everyone. Some sort of way of holding, holding uh, people accountable. Um, I think it's very difficult for young people who are inundated with so much information to sort out uh, among all these different. And so part of our job is to teach them to use libraries and to make, pay attention to sort of the credibility of different sources. But I, I certainly think universities play a very important role uh, in the future of democracy. And I think that part of what students learn in college is how to question their own preconceived ideas. And if anything is universal, and probably very few things are, it's ethnocentrism. It's the the belief that your way of doing things is the best. And I think when students have a chance to interact with people from different walks of life, and USC is one of the most diverse uh, schools in terms of student body and and class and international students and so on, it gives students a chance to question their ideas. And I think John mentioned that being at USC had really changed his way of thinking. Uh, thank you for that. So now we've got uh, many different factors, including education, as contributing uh, to the origins of uh, tribalism. Uh, Dr. Hopfall, you talk a lot about uh, about evolutionary biology as a contributor to to tribalism and how this is just innate in us as a species. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. The we as as a human species and why tribalism, in your view, really stems from that basic premise. Well. Humans are genetically uh, tribal. They were sitting at the home of the Trojans, and thank God there's no Notre Dame here kind of thing. Uh, 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 No, the fact that you can pull on it and get donors to give to it it, it is genetic. Uh, Or I was saying earlier, you can't get tigers to behave in groups. Uh, They are are loner species. Uh, We are uh, now... What happens, though, is the forebrain uh, allows us to have culture and to not be a slave to our genetics. So how do you pull on deeper brain? Hate and threat messaging, because that's, that's deep brain. If you're going to kill me, my reactions are, 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 are deep brain and, and reflexive. And so you begin this politics of fear of the hyperbole of fear of the enemy. They are rapists. The first signs of, of in the first Nazi conventions, uh, the, it was not about the Jews with money. The banners, if you look at the banners in Goldman's book, it stopped the Jews from raping Aryan women. Jews raping Aryan women? But this is what you have to, the button you have to press on to get a people to, only a few years later, uh, put 
put Jews in, in ovens. Uh, and so you have to create them as, as an existential enemy. Uh, I do appreciate that point very much. And, uh, and to your uh, earlier point, Jonas, you were talking about how it's easier to uh, cast someone as an enemy when there is no physical face-to-face interaction with them for biological reasons. Uh, and I wanted to understand about the role of the, the shrinking, I'll say, public square and whether or not that is a contributor to this. I'm thinking about union participation low, church participation low, retail sales low, movies low, concerts low. We can sit on our couch and order groceries and watch movies and never leave the house, never interact with another human being. And I wonder if from your point of view, in terms of uh, biology, if that trend of the shrinking public square is somehow contributing to this, uh, to tribalism. Yeah, it, it might. I mean, we're not exercising those aspects of our sociality as much anymore. Um, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a great thing for introverts like me. This is a sort of golden age where we can have everything just delivered to the house and, and not have to leave. Um, but yeah, there probably are these negative consequences as well, and it's important to think about what those are for sure. Uh, May I add something? Please. I think universities also need to be diverse ideologically. I think one of the things that has contributed to tribalism is the sense that not all points of view are welcome. It goes to what you were saying earlier. So I think education needs to make sure that classrooms are a place and conferences are places where people can disagree and and learn from each other. I think that's part of what the problem of tribalism is closing down certain points of view. I think public schools used to be the place where people met people from different backgrounds. I grew up in Berkeley during the 1960s, and as there's been white flight from schools and the rise of charter schools and all sorts of different phenomena, we haven't had as much... Uh, opportunity for young children to interact with each other. So you asked me about education earlier, and I thought those were a couple of points that ought to be noted. Can I, can I add to that? Because that's an excellent point. I, I love my alma mater. I love Hatford College. Uh, I went back to teach in 20, 2009, and the then chair of the political science department, who, of course, was one of my first teachers, said, what did Haverford do wrong that you turned out the way that you are? And I thought, well, that's really not very nice. And I'm not going to give another penny to my alma mater. But the notion that I can come to a liberal arts institution, be an English major, be exposed to diverse thoughts, opinions, ideas, etc., and yet be criticized for being a conservative because I don't follow the tribal notion of what it is to be a Haverford alumni or a Haverford student. Like, you're exactly right, that our institutions of higher learning, our secondary schools, should be open and welcoming places for people to actually learn and to interact and challenge people from different beliefs rather than be shut down because of them. No more money for Haverford. Like, I want to talk about my school. I had a course in sociobiology uh, from E.O. Wilson, so I, I'm not so thrilled about the idea that tribalism is genetically ingrained. We were told by Professor E.O. Wilson that the genetic basis for social behavior would always account for the dominant number of men in the academic and political sectors. And we, we wrote it down in our notebooks for the you know, midterm or whatever. So I'm not sure if we'll ever be able to settle the nature-nurture debate. And I'm not sure if it really matters because tribalism is a force in America and politics. So whatever, why ever, for whatever reasons we're predisposed to act in these ways, we need to think about solutions. We need to think about how to deal with the politics of fear and resentment and find ways to bring people together around common values. Um, tribalism is not something new. There have been all these earlier efforts to 
um, demonize people, whether it was the Japanese-American internment and FDR uh, making reference to stereotypes and, and race hatred, and the Supreme Court upholding that decision in, in the Korematsu case and so on. So it's not a new phenomenon, but it seems to me part of the question is what makes it worse now? And it, these messages are intensified because of the Internet, because things can go viral. And I think that's why our panel that deals with you know, these, the social media will be really important for this analysis. Oh, yes. 100%. Uh, go ahead, the part of me that's biologist... Uh, I'm very comfortable with the term primitive because to me primitive is, is lower brain or, or earlier. It's not uh, uh, the social science idea. And tribalism is lower is lower brain. It's from our old stuff. And then we have all this forebrain that, thank God, has brought us away from that and into uh, that we can decide how we're going to behave, not be controlled uh, um, by, by this deeper brain stuff. Again, this is why you have to make an existential threat that they're going to kill us, they're going to take us over, they're going to destroy the United States, because then that pulls on, uh, uh, on, on deep brain. Otherwise, we are very comfortable and want to live in, in, in uh, a, a reasonable forebrain place. Unless we're divorced and talking about our ex-spouse, and then you see, again, <laughs> but again, it's a real example, then you see deep brain stuff. How, have you ever, uh, how many of your friends are rational about their ex-spouse? No, be, and because it, it pulls on, on deeper brain, brain stuff, we, we would like to be, but we're, we're, we're just not. And this is why, again, you, we have to bring the discussion to what's rational, what's right. Uh, 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 I have your original question. My Republican friends are closer to me because my Republican friends agree with me about, about what's going on in, in the current politics. They see this politics of hatred as totally wrong and having nothing to do with the Republican Party, which is... Th thank you for those. It looks like two qu two more comments, and I want to shift to solutions. But uh, Jonas, he brought up the the biological argument, and, uh, and it's right in your wheelhouse. Yeah, I, I just wanted to say we shouldn't think of the brain as something that's fixed, and just because something is rooted in our biology doesn't mean that we can change it. The brain is is plastic; it's malleable. We know that we can train empathy. We can get better at it. We can emphasize these different aspects of. Um, the different things that make us up, and just knowing that they're in there doesn't mean that they they have to be expressed in the same way. So we, we don't want to fall into the trap of thinking that biology is the same thing as being fixed. Uh, Allison, did you want to come? One last comment. You brought up E.O. Wilson. Uh, okay, that's fair. I'm glad biological determinism isn't part of what we're, we're discussing. I remember my father-in-law saying women didn't have careers because in caveman days, you know, women couldn't hunt when they were pregnant. And I just, yeah. these, these kinds of arguments that people, people are limited by biology, I think, are, are, are unfortunate. I think people always be, um, uh, have these instincts that you refer to. But I think the point is, how do you allay fears so people don't, uh, sort of fall for these appeals? Um, if people feel that their jobs are in jeopardy. So, I mean, I think in terms of the solutions that you'd like us to talk about, I think if there were some sort of a right to a job and, and, and to help people who have been affected by outsourcing and by the economy, that there will, there will be ways to help people not have, fall prey to this politics of fear and, and this kind of resentment. Or, and have universities uh, provide, uh, uh, to, not to charge tuition or not to charge as much. If you had universal education or, you know, maybe it's all online courses or something, but somehow if you gave everyone access to education, then we wouldn't get bogged down in debates about meritocracy and who should be admitted and so on. 
th- those are really good points and a great segue to the solution section because, uh, Dr. Hopfall, at the end of your book, you laid out and were very clear about what you thought were solutions, and some of them were the ones that uh, Allison uh, just made. Uh, you outlined uh, solutions including, one, people must feel safe from threat and loss. Uh, people must feel a sense of belonging. People must associate pride with their group and shame with the group they reject, and not to underestimate the power of tribalism on our uh, genetic evolutionary brains constantly reassert the truth and display it before the public. I'm wondering if you could talk about, uh, to Allison's point, like how do we do that? How is it that we can help people uh, not have that sense of fear and loss and threats? Yes. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's a tough route out of tribalism. Historically, though, if we take Kennedy's inauguration speech, and everyone knows the ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. But if you have to read the lines before that, which is uh, uh, those who will, we have to be armed to the teeth, he talked about. We have to be so armed that no one would dare do otherwise to us. And those who threaten us, uh, who have tried to ride the tiger, have ended up in the tiger's stomach. So he threatened the communists, if you come at us at, the, at that time, that was the, the enemy, we, we will destroy you. And then the, the bridge message, and we welcome you, and we look for solutions to you. Usually out of, out of this, you have, whether FDR, Churchill, um, uh, Kennedy, you have a very powerful leader, uh, which can uh, very much, uh, in today's world, uh, be a, a, a female leader, although that'll be tough for 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 many individuals. To uh, many individuals voted against uh, uh, Hillary Clinton because she was a woman. Uh, uh, it uh, had you know, and they'll say it was because of her. She was this or that. What they really mean is she was a woman uh, uh, that was strong, and that's going to be a, a tough uh, hill to climb. But but the solution is usually. This message of power linked with a message of bridging and liberalism and openness to the other. Uh, That is a concrete uh, message of power and create the bridge. Uh, And that sounds like something that could be achieved at an institutional level or perhaps even at an individual level. Uh, And I wanted to talk a little bit more about the institutional level uh, and what structurally can be done. This is the hard stuff. Uh, And uh, Ron, I wanted to, if I can, ask uh, ask you this question. what changes do you think could or should be implemented at a, at a federal level to help reduce polarization in politics? Are we talking nonpartisan gerrymandering? Are we talking campaign finance reform so that politicians spend less time, to your point, uh, fundraising than, than legislating or working together? Uh, what about greater participation in the electoral process? Do we want election week versus election day? Vote by Internet? Uh, do we need to change the congressional schedule so they don't show up on Monday and leave on Thursday? They have more time for barbecues and baseball and, and bluster and beer right afterwards, right? So can uh, what are some of those things you see that we should uh, do in D.C.? You know, I think many of our elected officials have forgotten the motto of the United States of e pluribus unum, out of many, one. We have a system now in Washington, D.C., where they hate Washington, right? They demonize the city. They don't want to be there. And if you demonize the city and you don't want to be there, that means that you're not going to put any roots in that city. If you're not going to put any roots in that city, you're not going to have any friends or people that you want to associate with who aren't on your team. I remember when I started in 1991, most of my friends on the Hill were Democrats. Most of the people that Congressman Kasich, then Congressman Kasich, hung out with were Democrats. It's very hard to demonize someone who you know, 
someone who you like, and someone who you have worked with. And we have a system now in Washington, yes, the money aspect is bad. There are too many ads. There's too much of an incentive to raise more money. To, if, if I have to win, that means you have to lose. We have to find a way that the American people can win, not based on party affiliation, but on what's best for the country. And I almost wish that all the members of Congress could have heard our conversation today. We are obviously of different backgrounds, of different interests, but we have a common interest of trying to get rid of the tribalization that has infected our politics. So how do we end this at the federal level of not demonizing people, seeing people as individuals and not players on a particular team, and most importantly, remembering the reason why you were elected to public service, which was to serve others and not to serve your team. Well said, and thank you. Uh, Allison, you have a, a paper on this topic that you're working on now. I'm wondering if you can speak to some of the solutions you envision for how we can disrupt tribalism. Well, I think that we've talked about demonizing, and I think if we realize that we tend to uh, assign negative stereotypes to groups as a form of projection, if we sort of notice the patterns of our own thinking, I think that's one way to disrupt tribalism. Um, and this has been going on, you know, in various cycles in history. Um, a paper that deals with this that's uh, by a historian, Richard Hofstetter, The Paranoid Style in American Politics, shows that this is a, a recurring pattern in, in American political life, this demonizing. And I think part of it is maybe people are not aware that, they, you know, that, that their behavior patterns and thoughts reflect these kinds of uh, 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 patterns. Um, I think if we call attention to the values that we share in terms of American national identity, um, equal opportunity, the rule of law, justice, that families, family values matter, there are a lot of common values that bring us together. And part of the reason Hofstetter's interpretation is so powerful is that it's when we have some anxiety about what our national identity actually is, that's when we start to um, behave in these irrational ways and, and demonize people. So I think partly it's calling attention to what unifies us, the e pluribus unum, but also recognizing that you can be a good American if you're critical, you can be a good American if you speak other languages, if you follow uh, other religions, that you can have multiple identities, you can be tribal in multiple ways, and you don't have to choose. And if people who feel under siege are willing to embrace people who are different and make them feel they're part of the system, I think that will also go a long way towards undermining these trends towards tribalism. I, I appreciate that point very much because uh, when I think about structural reform, it's daunting. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of money. I'm just one person. How can I do it? It's sort of like I'm recycling and thinking I can stop uh, global climate change. You feel uh, relatively powerless. But what you just described is powerful. That's something that I can do. And that's something I wanted to ask you about, Dr. Kaplan, because uh, you have uh, studied what we can do as individuals. So, for example, uh, if we see uh, fake news on television, and it's let's say it's legitimately fake, shame on the perpetrators of the fake news. But what about shame on us for falling prey to that and believing this garbage, right? Uh, what about that? Uh, and so I wanted uh, to see if you could speak a bit about uh, about. How do we get out of our own way? How do we burst out of our echo chambers? How do we be receptive to other ideas? How do we be these bridge builders that Allison is describing? Yeah, that is definitely the way that I think about the question. And I would say the first point I would make about it is that we don't actually know. We don't know what the answer is of how to counteract these things. And so the first thing that's important is to put effort into finding out and to understanding how this works and to finding solutions. We're doing some of that in the research lab now. Um, but what I think is important is 
first just recognizing in ourselves how these processes work and having some kind of meta-awareness of what's happening within us so that we can then respond to it. You know, the first step in, in recognizing that you are avoiding a whole group of people, yet that's a psychological recognition you, you need to have before you address it in any kind of way, right? So if we realize that we're spending um, less time with out-group members, we can then try to counteract that by intentionally encountering out-group members and then fostering those kinds of natural empathy we have when we spend time with other people. Um, so I think uh, some form of, of mindfulness is probably going to be at, at, the, uh, at the center of this and just sort of recognizing what's going on within, within us. And mindfulness is interesting. Incidentally, we have a new mindfulness research center here at USC, which is important in these efforts. Um, but the other aspect of mindfulness that's interesting is that you, you know, in the course of practicing mindfulness, you develop a kind of objectivity with respect to yourself. And if you can have some kind of distance from your own identity, I think that's something that can help us uh, to be less tribal um, because we can sort of not be quite so attached to what it is that we think that we are. Uh, thank you for that. We have a couple more minutes here before we wrap up the solutions. Then we're going to go to uh, uh, questions and answers. But uh, you mentioned that uh, you weren't, you didn't know uh, what those solutions would be internally. Uh, and I want to offer a few. Uh, and one of them is uh, the concept of listening. And I just wanted to ask about whether or not you think listening, and I mean genuinely listening, not listening, waiting for your turn to speak or listening so you can share some story about how you relate to that uh, person, but listening to understand and listening as a way of developing empathy and listening as a way of engendering respect for someone with opposing viewpoints. So it would not just, it's no longer a straw man or a steel man. Now all those what do you, mirror neurons are firing, right? Because I get you as a person. Uh, can you talk about, uh, if anyone wants to just share... Personally, because this is a political issue, but listen, this is all happening at our dinner tables too, right? Uh, so what can we do as, as people? Uh, and I wanted to ask if, in your opinion, you think listening is part of the solution. I'm going to say that, in a sense, it's not. Uh, uh, what I, uh, and I know that sounds crazy, but because I think we've already heard. So for what I mean by that is the politician that's going to... Uh, save, let's say, the Democrats, I think is going to say, hold on, these coal miners, I can't clean up the environment and put them out of a job. Environment being a liberal issue and their jobs a Republican issue. I've got to figure out a solution that does both. Because to, to push the uh, environmental issues and, and, and starve a family is not an acceptable solution. And I already... Uh, uh, I've got to think about that not as a Republican-Democrat problem, but as a just a complex problem that's going to require solutions that are neither liberal nor conservative. They're pragmatic. And I think we have to start with those pragmatic areas where we're not polarized. Who here doesn't think, who here wants to starve coal miners? None of us. And who here wants a dirty environment? None of us. So, so we have a pragmatic problem that needs a solution that is neither Democrat or Republican. And that starts a bridge. Then, uh, And maybe we won't get to abortion and some of the other issues uh, in our lifetime, uh, certainly not in my lifetime, but we'll start uh, on critical issues that are important to, to all of us. Let me ask another question. So if it's not listening, I think it's listening uh, <laughs> as part of it. Uh, uh, but I, w I want to introduce another one, which is the, the notion of, of understanding opposing viewpoints. Uh, there's been studies that say, look, if you get one opposing viewpoint drip in your Twitter feed, 
it's going to not make you more receptive to that opposing view. It's going to make your own view that much more entrenched. So the notion of just basic exposure to opposing view is not necessarily the way to go. However, there's plenty of other studies that will talk about deep, meaningful interactions with people who are partisans on the other side. And when it's no longer a straw man, it's a steel man. And when those arguments are compelling and real and we're face to face, then they can have this dramatic effect of reducing the, the, the polarization. And I just want to ask uh, your, your views, maybe agree, maybe disagree, about exposure, meaningful exposure to opposing views and whether or not you see that as part of a solution. Because that's something we can do, sit with racist Uncle Hal at Thanksgiving dinner and hear him out and, and uh, have a meaningful exchange. And I, what do you think about that? Can I, so this is one that's, that's near and dear to me because I'm me. Um, I'm not a hyphen, Right. So I look at my friend Mike Murphy back there, and I don't say that he's an Irish-American. I say that he's my friend and he's an American. But yet people will look at me and say, well, you're an African-American. And I say, well, actually, I'm a Californian first. I'm an American second. And people want to get in my face and say, well, you're self-loathing. You, you know, don't have any respect for your race. And I say, why do I have to have a hyphen in front of my name when I'm as much American as Murphy is back there, but no one says, well, he's Irish American. And the notion that people have preconceived ideas of who we are by how we look, I find very offensive. So to answer your question of how can we bridge that? And of course it is about listening to your previous question of hear me out on that. I'm not self-loathing. I'm not saying anything about my race, but I'm so proud to be a Californian and I'm so proud to be an American. Why can't I have that opinion that you want to disagree with me on it based on a perceived political ideology or other notion? Well, thank you for it. When with the last couple of minutes here, does anyone else want to offer another solution that we as individuals can do? We can walk out of this conference today and say, you know what? I can do that. Anything else we can do? We heard listening. We heard uh, being the bridge. We've heard so many different strategies here. If there's any other strategies, please. you got a strategy. I guess I can add to it. We need to acknowledge each other's voices. And as a Mexican-American, I guess I, I am hyphen <laughs> because I, I, I definitely represent uh, my parents, grandparents, and where they came from. But I am just an American, as American as you and anybody else. Yeah. Uh, but again, acknowledging our voices is very important. In yes. future plannings, please include a Mexican-American as a panelist. Uh, <laughs> treat each other with utmost care and respect and integrity. If you can hear that, he's saying treat each other with respect and integrity. Excellent point. Right. Recognize our voices, acknowledge voices, and fair criticism. Where's the Mexican-American on the panel? Criticism noted. We strive for balance. We can't uh, please everybody, and I do uh, recognize that it would be wonderful to have even a broader representation here. Uh, let me make this point. Um, when Ben Franklin left the Constitutional Convention, uh, he was asked uh, by a person on the street, and many of you know this story very well. Tony, I know you know it from the, the Reagan Library here. Uh, he was asked, uh, what form of government have you given us? And he said, a republic if you can keep it. And the if you can keep it part for a lot of us uh, is a bit perplexing. We're wondering, can we keep it? You know, this is a 242-year-old experiment, uh, and it's awfully young as an experiment. So can we keep this thing on the rails? We sure want it to be on the rails for a lot of good reasons. Now, 
We need to do the hard work of bringing the structural reforms that many of you have talked about. We need to do the hard work of the individual things when we're sitting with people in these uncomfortable situations. Uh, we need to uh, seek the opposing views, be generous in interpreting another person's actions, listening, all these things we've talked about, thinking of the commonalities, being the bridge, uh, and supporting the work of organizations, and I'll shameless plug, for the USC Dornsife Center for the Political Future and organizations like it uh, that are really devoted to depolarizing and, and improving the political process uh, in this country. Uh, so with that, I wanted to, uh, if I can, thank the panel and then open it up to... To, and open it up to questions. So that's uh, the, the part where we're at now. If you do have questions, and again, please, questions, not necessarily comments. Uh, you can save uh, the comments for uh, for us in, in individually. But if you do have a question, I would love to hear it. And someone with a microphone will approach shortly. Yeah, great panel. Um, actually, I have a lot of questions, so I'll just throw them out there and see what response we get. One, um, I'm curious, like, in terms of facts, who do the panelists feel is the arbiter of facts? Like, what is the truth and what isn't in terms of, you know, one example might be just, well, yeah. So that's one question. And then I was curious in terms of tribalism, are nations the biggest offenders of tribalism, in terms, especially in terms of violence? Um, and then also in terms of political tribalism, if would we be better off with one party like China has, and then you get rid of the tribalism? Anybody who wants it, go for it. Well, I think in terms of the facts, uh, I think the mainstream media do fact-checking, and that's an important distinction. Um, it could be that where there are uh, false statements made, that there should be those should be immediately dealt with and and, uh, and have those corrected. Um, some people even think that there should be um, racial hoax laws where people make statements that are ethnic slurs, that they sh there should be it should be treated as um, a, a sort of a form of hate speech or or fraud, um, and so you, New Jersey considered a law like that. Um, but but facts uh, have to be evaluated and corroborated, and that's one of the problems with the proliferation of, so of social media. Um, nations are one of the biggest offenders in terms of tribalism, but tribalism occurs at sub-state levels as well, sub-national levels. So I think it, the most visible forms are at the national level, but any group that has a common linking factor is effect effectively a tribe, so you can have occupational tribalism and so forth. I think one of the issues with political tribalism is that it, some of us don't think it's symmetrical. We think that the use of tribalism in, in recent years has been more by the Republican Party, by President Trump in particular. And I think that's one thing that we should talk about today. I think not having one party is not the direction if we're trying to challenge you know, the trend towards authoritarianism. Rather, we need maybe multiple parties um, and uh, more than two parties uh, to reflect different points of view. Uh, I, I wanted to ask our panel a related question to what you brought up as the arbiter of facts, because we have seen uh, studies that talked about the... Uh, Sadly, the inefficacy of fact-checking, and oftentimes when people are exposed to the fact, they will not say, oh, gosh, I got it wrong, sorry about that. Uh, they will double down on their incorrect information. And I, I was wondering, Dr. Kaplan, if you could kind of speak to that point, how in the face of a fact, a person will resolutely deny it. Yeah, I mean, information is so much harder to unlearn than it is to learn, which is why we have to be really careful about what information we accept to begin with. That's why skepticism is so important. Um, but especially when a belief is um, 
part of our identity. It becomes sort of part of the protected circle of the self that the, the brain is trying to protect. And then we get very, very defensive, and you see things like the backfire effect, where people can often uh, increase the strength of their belief when challenged. So that's, that's why it's so important for us to be uh, skeptical to begin with, to make sure that wh whatever we're inviting into that protected castle is, is true, because it's going to be hard to get rid of. Uh, thank you. Do we have any more questions? Yes. Uh, so first of all, I wanted to thank the panel. It has been a really great, substantive, and productive conversation. So my question sort of goes to Dr. Bentel's point about how uh, younger people are um, are sort of taking in the political landscape now. And I don't think a conversation is complete without talking about sort of different social platforms that my generation participates on. So for example, on YouTube, political polarization is a lot more extreme. On the left, we have people that identify as, for example, anarcho-syndicalists. And on the right, we have people that advocate for an ethno-state. Um, probably the most uh, famous example is the fact that the El Paso shooter posted uh, his manifesto before he went out and shot specifically Latinx people at a Walmart. So I wanted to ask, what do you make of this? And what do you make of the fact that my generation, the younger generation, is being socialized in such a vitriolic and such an extreme and reactionary environment? That's a terrific question. We haven't talked much about intergenerational differences with respect to tribalism, so you make a really good point with your question, so thank you for that. Um, I think obviously we have to distinguish among the different platforms, but you're basically alluding to the issue of censorship. And I was uh, a visiting scholar in Australia, um, and we had a conference about um, after Christchurch. And there have been new laws, as you may know, adopted in Australia and New Zealand to regulate circulating abhorrent speech. And they're written so broadly, they prohibit the depiction of killing or torture, but don't really distinguish between, you know, like feature films and, and news and so on. So I think there's great concern as a society. We have great concern about protecting young people from hateful messages and, and graphic forms of violence. But having censorship laws that are so overbroad that that's not going to be the solution. So... Uh, I don't have the answer to your question. I think it's an important one that I hope we'll discuss during the rest of the day. Some of the other panels, I think, will address this. I think we haven't talked enough about accountability. I mean, there are laws, for example, um, that impose penalties if people falsely represent weather conditions. And so when President Trump falsely stated something about Hurricane Dorian, he could be subject to a sanction under that law. So, you know, where facts are misrepresented in which, in whatever forum, we, we, we can have better forms of accountability. And maybe young people will demand more accountability going forward. I, I'd love to pick up on that point, too, because I, I think it's an excellent one. And I say this to my students all the time. People look so often and say, oh, the, the baby boomers and those are the ones who have so much influence and power in Washington, D.C., well, the largest segment now is the young folks' generation. And knowing that, Make sure that your voice is heard. Major in political science. <laughs> English. <laughs> uh, with that, I do want to thank our panel, Ron Christie, Allison Rentel, Stephen Hopfall, Jonas Kaplan. Thank you very much, folks. Thank you for joining us on Election R&D. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast from. 
Follow us on Twitter at USC POL Future. That's USC POL Future. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs. 